Welcome, everyone. My name is Elena Shotland. I am the chair of the American Thoracic Society Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Journal Club. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Alan Pack. Thank you for joining us, Alan. Well, thank you. Wait a minute. My pleasure. So my first question to you is, I just want to hear a little bit um, about yourself, where you're from, where did you grow up, and where did you study? Yeah, well, I grew up in Scotland, and I went to the University of Glasgow, where I got my medical degree, and eventually got a PhD there. And then I moved to America in 1976, and I joined the, the faculty of the University of Pennsylvania in the primary and critical care division. Excellent. Um, what got you interested or involved in sleep medicine? Well, what happened was when I came to Penn in 1976, I came to join the, the research group in Neil Cherniak, studying control of breathing. And before I got there, Neil had left and had moved to Cleveland, where eventually he, he was recruiting there as head of a primary case, Wharton, eventually became the dean. And I inherited, essentially, his operation at Penn. Um, and we were studying control of breathing and animals and stuff like that. And I realized that it had really zero, well, not zero, but very limited clinical applications. And I saw, looked around, there's a number of people in my, my generation, and people like Colin Sullivan, Rammers, and so on. And and we couldn't involve the sleep disorder breathing because it clearly was a, a very interesting area. And I started to see patients with sleep happening. And I realized, you know, this was incredibly common. I realized you could really help people. And I found it to be a fascinating area. And, you know, that would be in the early 1980s. And, and, and so I got involved more on, on sleep and, and made that my career. Were there any unique circumstances that brought you to sleep medicine? Well, no, I, I just got involved in that. And, you know, we had no, we had no sleep libel pen at the time. Uh, you know, <laughs> just like in most places, uh, you know, getting getting the thing going was challenging. Uh, we started a sleep lab in 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 the EEG lab. That they were very helpful to us in neurology. They allowed us to do sleep studies there by night. It was an EEG lab by day. We managed to get a grant. I got half the technician from the hospital after the grant, and and got and got the basically the show on the road, and and then then continued continued to to build it. And it really was a time of enormous growth in the sleep field. I mean, in the in the late eighties. I, I got a score grant for, in 1988. I got a score grant from NIH, and you know I felt I was in terrific shape. Al Fishman, who chairs the the primary, he ran the primary critical care division. He retired, and I was like the head of department. Uh, and, and that wasn't to be. And I, I remember saying to the chair of the search committee, "I can argue I'm number one or number two in my field." He said, "You may be, but who needs your field?" <laughs> <laughs> So, so that, that's the way sleep was in these days. I mean, you were, you were out in a limb, and, and, and obviously it's, it's moved to being very mainstream, but it certainly wasn't mainstream when I started. Were there, uh, was there someone who mentored, helped, or inspired you along the way? Uh, you know, I mean, I got involved in it. As I said, Al Fishman was there. Al, Al was terrific to people who were early in the career. If you're an assistant professor under all, he really gave you enormous support. When you started developing your own own national, international reputation, 
he wasn't quite as optimistic. <laughs> but, 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 you know, there, there wasn't anybody. I, you know, people say they, they work for demand or they came from this branch or that branch. I mean, I basically built my own branch. That's what I did. So of what achievement or paper would you say you are most proud? Well, I, I, I've published papers. I mean, I'm, I'm different than many people. I've published papers in basic science and I published papers in, in sleep apnea and I've managed to maintain the clinical research. The paper that is probably most cited in the sleep apnea world is the original paper that we did with Nancy Cribbs and David Dinges, where we developed the, the first uh, objective way of looking at hearings to see part. Right, I mean, we've got the score brand with that in there. We never patented the thing, which was a mistake. <laughs> but um, we, 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 you know, prior to that time, with machine on, machine off, and we, we've built a system where you look at pressure in the mouth and so on, and um, we could actually get, you know, you would actually wear in your seatbelt. So that was that was the most exciting paper. I think another paper I'm pretty proud of in terms of. Uh, sleep apnea is the paper we published in the Unerland Journal where we looked at the you know, CPAP, the weight loss, the combination. And in terms of the basic research, the paper I'm probably most proud of is the paper we published uh, with John Henricks where we identified sleep and drosophila. And, 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 you know, and that was something we did. We got heavily involved in thinking about, I still remember it, I, I co-chaired a workshop at NIH, and we brought together the people who studied circadian rhythm and flies and so on, and then the people like Paul McCarthy, Jerry Siegel, they did sleep, and we asked the question, could there be sleep in non-mammalian species in these species like Drosophila? The, the sleep people said, oh, for God's sake, <laughs> what are you talking about? The, the, the people like Rosebach eventually got a Nobel Prize. I mean, he said, oh, this is a great area. And, and we really pushed that along and we identified sleep with John Hendricks and Amita Segal and just off what. And then with David Razor, we identified it and see elegance. So I'm pretty proud of that. That was, that, was, that was something that I think was a very important thing. It opened up that whole world. And there's now loads of labs studying sleep in mortal organisms. What would you say brings you the most joy professionally? Well, I think the thing I, I enjoy most professionally is we've trained a boatload of people. And, and I believe that that's fundamental. I remember when I came to Ben, Al Fishman uh, gave me a couple of uh, things that I really, really made a, an impact on me. Uh, I mean, the first thing he said to me was, look, he said, you come from Britain. He said, and I know Britain, and you're there working for the consultants. And that is certainly true. He said, here, the fellows don't work for us. We work for the fellows. And I thought that was, a, and I've always stuck with that. That was a very important thing. The second thing I remember I was saying to me was, look, he said, science is like a relay race. You ride, you ride your lap, but you've got to have somebody to hand the baton to. And, and, you know, and I believe, I fundamentally believe in that. Uh, one of the things that we did when, when we got the center camp going is we made training of people a very important priority. And I, I think I'm, you know, I think that's why I get the most pleasure of seeing all the people we train doing extremely well. How do you keep up your career momentum? Well, I, you know, 
it, it, that's hard. I mean, because there's so many different challenges and so on, and and it's getting increasingly hard. I think, uh, you know, I ran the division for this. I mean, I got the centre going in 1991. Ran that for 28 years. It was a long time. I got the sleep medicine division going 2000 2001 and directed that for 18 years and then gave that, I gave both of them up. Uh, running the division became an increasingly time-consuming job. I mean, it's all about the money and the budgets and the compliance and <laughs> it's not really, it's not really an academic job. And that's why I gave it up because I was finding it almost impossible to maintain a, a really vibrant research career. So I decided to give both of them up and focus solely on research. And I think I, the, the advice I would give is these jobs sound very attractive. I've seen a lot of people who get into these jobs running big, I mean, we didn't have a big division. And you have, these bone divisions are enormous, right? And and they, you got all these faculty issues, faculty this, you know, lots of issues you have to deal with. And, uh, and you know, it just consumes enormous amounts of your time. And I would advise Andy, who wants to have an academic research career, to think very carefully before they take on one of these jobs. Is there a backstory that you have that would be fun for us to know? Well, you know, I mean, I mean what, what's interesting is how I ended up coming to America, right? And, and that's an interesting story. So, so basically, I was in Glasgow, and I had my own money from uh, the Wellcome Trust, okay? But, you know, the, the, the academic system in Britain at that, at least in Scotland at that time, was a bit odd. It, to be, there, there was, in, I was in the Rock Glasgow Royal Infirmary, and the chair of medicine, he wasn't an endocrinologist, he studied the thyroid. So he studied thyroid disease. So if you wanted to be in the academic department, you had to study the thyroid. If you did formal cardiology, you, you, you were in the National Health Service. Uh, so, so it was a, it was a tough, tough thing. I managed to get my own money for a few years and the welcome, and they were worried about me. They said, "We don't know what's going to happen to you. Where are you going?" Uh, so, what I did is, you had to get. I had the welcome money, but then I had to get National Health Service honorary appointments. So, I I had became, a, you know, an honorary senior lecturer, senior registrar. You know, that in Britain. The average age of graduating medical school at that time was 24 because you went straight from high school. The average age of becoming a consultant and attending was 58. So you, so you spend 14 years basically helping the consultants do their work and not causing any trouble. And it, at the end of that time, I was 31, and my wife and I had three kids. And um, the the guy who ran the, 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 the floor I was on in Glasgow, he took me aside one day and he said, Anna, he said, you've got to understand our system. He said, we have a lifeboat system. You're in the water and we're in the boat. And we decide who we take on the boat. So that was a pretty clear message. And and so I realized I was sort of on my own and I applied for a job uh, as a consultant running the bone functional lab at the Brompton Hospital in London. Now, I've got a working class Glasgow accent. So I go down to London, they look at me like, who's this country yokel? Who the hell is this guy? And, and so it was it was a weird experience. So it was three of us interviewed for the job, for this job. I had to go down the previous week and I was interviewed by all the consultants at the Brompton. 
the, the guy who was the chair of the thing, he sat in an elevated chair like a throne, and I sat below him, and they were all pounding me with his questions. And then when the actual interview came, uh, they asked us to wait. So the, 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 there was three of us interviewed. There was, a, there was one, of them, one of the people who had a PhD and didn't have a medical degree. The other guy had a medical degree, came from London, and me. And we were asked to wait. And the chairman of the Board of Governors, who was a guy, you know, at this very start, white shirt, he felt if he had a cardiac arrest, so much stuff, it, 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 it wouldn't have fallen over. And he said, gentlemen, would you like a drink? And we said, yeah, that would be good. So he gave us a bottle of Harvest Bristol Cream Sherry and three glasses. And I knew I wasn't getting the job. And the other guy, the other medical guy, knew he wasn't getting the job because we were going to give it to the PhD because they didn't want anybody competing with them for the hardest. They were all in private practice and the hardest treatment. They didn't want any competition there. So about two-thirds of the way down the bottle, but this other guy and I, we were having a great time. We were there for two hours. And, and he said to me, have you ever thought of going to America? And I said, no, not really, but the state I'm in, i got to think about getting a job to do research somewhere. And so he said to me, well, I just came back from Philadelphia, and, uh, you know, they're looking for our fishermen there, looking for something. Would you like me to send your name? And I said, that would be great. So when I came out, what happened after the, the guy who was getting the job, he was starting to sweat. Because why has it taken so long, right? So at the end of it, the, the guy who was the chairman of the Board of Governors, he came in and said, gentlemen, and then he said, come, come with me to meet the committee. And he said to the other guy, and I, well, let me show you out. And he showed us out the back door. Right? I mean, it was, it was almost immediate. <laughs> I said, if you're a country yoko from Scotland, that's what they treated you like. And, and I called my wife. And I said, it's a long story of this. I went to a restaurant in Nicebridge, a gin and tart. I already had too much to drink. And I, and I called my wife and I said, I never get the job, but I met a guy that said there might be a job in America. And she said, what? I'm not going to America. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's what happened. And I, and I came and I got the job at Penn and it was the best thing I ever did. My kids tell me all the time, Dad, thank God you made this move. So it was been, because America has been great for me. That's wonderful. Uh, would you? Is there anything that you would have done differently during your career? No, that's that's a, that's a good question. No, I I, I think I, I was extremely fortunate. I mean, if you look back, uh, you know, making that move to America was a was a key move for me. Just total serendipity. When I never got the pulmonary job at Penn in the 1990, 1990, whatever it was, uh, I mean, that was kind of depressing at the time, but it was actually the best thing that happened to me. If, if I had become head of pulmonary at Penn, I wouldn't be wouldn't be having this conversation. I'd have just gone down the, the toilet, basically, and from an academic point of view. Uh, and and I, I, and sleep's been great. I've loved it in the time of had It's a wonderful field. Lots of great people, lots of great questions, you're helping people. And I, I'm, I really feel very privileged uh, to have been involved in this. If you hadn't been involved in sleep medicine, what do you think you would have done instead besides thyroid? Right. Well, somebody said to me recently, what's your main hobby? I said, well, I like playing golf, but I'm not very good. 
He said, well, maybe that's what you should say. <laughs> if you're a tentative, be a great golfer and play golf. But honestly, I, I, I can't imagine the, the career that, and the, the life I've had. I, I can't imagine doing anything else. I mean, academic medicine is it's just a wonderful, if you stay away from all of the, the bureaucracy and all of that stuff and you stay focused on the academic side, it's a wonderful life. I mean, you get to reinvent yourself, which I've done on many different occasions. You stay intellectually challenged. You have friends all over the world. You get to travel quite a lot, meet people that are always very respectful and you know nice to you and so on. So I, I and, and you feel you're making a difference. Whether you are or not, I don't know, but you feel you're making a difference. So I can't imagine doing anything else. What would you say the biggest technology innovations or changes you've seen over your career? Well I, I think right now I think we're into that that's one of the reasons I want to keep keep doing rips it because I really feel that the opportunities have never been never been bigger. I mean, the amount of data that's available on the wire in various ways, and the sharing of data it makes it terrific. The big data approaches, you know, that you can use, uh, the ability to do genetic studies with huge numbers. And, and you know, I love that stuff because the, the challenge to clinical research is always recruitment. Can you recruit people? You spend your time talking about, oh, and many people would have said, well, we need to do more NIH, and where's the number? Now, now I mean, we, we just have got a GWAS done with 46,000 people with cases in Stepana. It may sound a lot. The Million Vet Project's did with 200,000. But no, but you're, you're identifying these people using algorithms and EHRs. You don't have to recruit them. So the ability to really move clinical research forward uh, in, a, in a very major way has never been higher. Uh, and I, I think that, you know, the ability, you know, the million VAB project is going to be, partly they're going to 2 million, but that's going to be huge. And then the All of Us programs. So there's these big programs out there, the biobanks at Penn, we collaborate with the Penn Biobanks and Geisinger. And the, the ability to do stuff is just amazing. So I would say look, right now is it, the biggest um, the biggest change, and, and, and on the basic science side, I mean, the number of mouse models that are out there can uphold them, and this and that, and what you can do is amazing. So I think that just in the last few years, the technology development, both in the basic research side, and particularly now in the clinical research, is really positioned to take our field to a whole new level. In retrospect, what has surprised you the most over the course of your long career? Well, I see one of the things that surprised me is that I never thought that sleep would ever, I mean, in early days, people used to say, oh my God, you lost your mind doing that. And But it's really become mainstream. I mean, it really has. And and a lot of that wasn't driven by, by the profession. It was really driven by the public. I mean, the public identified sleep to almost been very important. I remember when I started doing this and seeing patients and stuff, I remember a guy coming to see me with an article, and he said, I've got sleep apnea. And I told my primary care guy, I said, you know, of that. I showed him the article and so on. So I'll, these people were, were they, they weren't early on, they weren't being referred by the docs. They were finding their way themselves. 
So I think patients, the public, played a big role. And I didn't, I never thought that sleep would ever end up being quite as mainstream as ours. What do you think are the biggest challenges for the field now? Well, I think the biggest single challenge for the field is maintaining the pipeline. Uh, you know, I think it's incredibly challenging. I think particularly keeping physician scientists involved. Uh, I think that the fact that people, people at physician science, you know, young people, physicians are thinking about the future, and they look at people like me writing grants and writing grants and writing grants, and they say, "Hey, I'm not doing that." So, so I think the biggest single challenge actually is maintaining the pipeline of physician scientists. And on a related note, what advice would you give people new to the field of sleep medicine? Well, I, yeah, that's a good question. Well, I mean, typically, I, I I think it's very important. I mean, what I believe in in mentoring people with the you know postdocs and so on, I tell them that, you know, based on my classical experience, that you know, it's your life. You have to decide for yourself what you want to do. Uh, our job is to help you make that decision in some way, get all the information you need, et cetera, et cetera. But it's got to be your life. It's not, it's not us telling you what to do. you got to decide for yourself what you want to do. And then our job is to help you. And I tell them, you need to think about yourself as opening a pizza store, right? You've got a business plan. And how many pizzas are you going to sell first year? And you're going to have a plan to sell this number and so on. You need to think about yourself as a one-person business. And what's your business plan? and have goals that you what you're going to achieve in one year, three years, and five years, and think of yourself as a one-person business. And, and and I think if you think about it that way, you know, they've institutionalized that now with these IDPs, these individual development plans, and I think that's a good thing. I mean, that's something I've always done, is encourage people to come up with their own development plan. But, he, but it's very important that they decide for themselves what they want to be. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you would like to tell us? No, I, I no, I, I, <laughs> I think, I think then I, I, I'm a great, uh, what would you say, advocate for 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 the, the type of career I've had, whether I'm seen as a dinosaur and that's not going to happen in the future. I mean, you can argue that, but I, I do, I do believe that the, the life I've had, as I've indicated, I really feel very blessed. I feel I wouldn't have believed that early on. Some of the changes we took, some of the, the risks we took, but I think it's all worked out extremely well. And, and I feel very, very privileged to, to be able to do this. Wonderful. Well, thank you, Alan Pack, for joining us today. Um, it's been our pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for the questions. Okay. You're welcome.